Chapter Five of Chopin: The Man and His Music. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julie Vermolchem. Chopin: The Man and His Music by James Hanneker. Chapter Five: Poet and Psychologist. Part One. Music is an order of mystic sensuous mathematics, a sounding mirror, an aural mode of motion. It addresses itself on the formal side to the intellect. In its content of expression, it appeals to the emotions. Ribot, admirable psychologist, does not hesitate to proclaim music as the most emotional of the arts. It acts like a burn, like heat, cold, or a caressing contact and is most dependent on psychological conditions. Music, then, the most vague of the arts in the matter of representing the concrete, is the swiftest, surest agent for attacking the sensibilities. The cry made manifest, as Wagner asserts, it is a cry that takes on fanciful shapes, each soul interpreting it in an individual fashion. Music and beauty are synonymous, just as their form and substance are indivisible. Havelock Ellis is not the only aesthetician who sees the marriage of music and sex. No other art tells us such old forgotten secrets about ourselves. It is in the mightiest of all instincts, the primitive sex traditions of the race before man was, that music is rooted. Beauty is a child of love. Dante Gabriel Rossetti has imprisoned in a sonnet the almost intangible feeling aroused by music, the feeling of having pursued in the immemorial past the root of evanescence. Is it this guy's vast vault or ocean sound that is life's self and draws my life from me, and by instinct, ineffable decree, holds my breath? quailing on the bitter bound? Nay, is it life or death, thus thunder-crowned, that midst the tide of all emergency, now notes my separate wave, and to what sea its difficult eddies labour in the ground? O oh, what is this that knows the road I came? The flame-turned cloud, the cloud returned to flame, the lifted, shifted steeps and all the way, that draws around me at last this wind-warm space, and in regenerate rapture turns my face upon the devious covets of dismay. This azure psychology gives music its power, it steers straight for the soul through the cortical cells. During the last half of the nineteenth century, two men became rulers of musical emotion, Richard Wagner and Frédéric-François Chopin. The music of the latter is the most ravishing gesture that art has yet made. Wagner and Chopin, the macrocosm and the microcosm. Wagner has made the largest impersonal synthesis attainable of the personal influences that thrill our lives cries Havelock Alice. Chopin, a young man, slight of frame, furiously playing out upon the keyboard his soul, 
the soul of his nation, the soul of his time, is the most individual composer that has ever set humming the looms of our dreams. Wagner and Chopin have a motor element in their music that is fiercer, intenser, and more fugacious than that of all other composers. For them it is not the Buddhistic void in which shapes slowly form and fade. Their psychical tempo is devouring. They voiced their age. They moulded their age, and we listen eagerly to them, to these vibrant prophetic voices so sweetly corrosive, bardic, and appealing. Chopin being nearer the soil in the selection of forms, his style and structure are more naive, more original than Wagner's, while his medium, less artificial, is easier filled than the vast empty frame of the theatre. Through their intensity of conception and of life, both men touch issues so widely dissimilar in all else. Chopin had greater melodic and as great harmonic genius as Wagner. He made more themes. He was, as Rubinstein wrote, the last of the original composers, but his scope was not scenic. He preferred the stage of his soul to the windy spaces of the music drama. His is the interior play, the eternal conflict between body and soul. He viewed music through his temperament, and it often becomes so imponderable, so bodiless, as to suggest a fourth dimension in the art. Space is obliterated. With Chopin, one does not get, as from Beethoven, the sense of spiritual vastness, of the overarching sublime. There is the pathos of spiritual distance, but it is pathos, not sublimity. His soul was a star and dwelt apart, so not in the Miltonic or Wordsworthian sense. A Shelley-like tenuity at times wings his thought, and he is a creator of a new thrill within the thrill. The charm of the dying fall, the unspeakable cadence of regret for the love that is dead, is in his music. Like John Keats, he sometimes sees charmed magic casements opening on the foam of perilous seas in fairy lands forlorn. Chopin, subtle souled psychologist, is more kin to Keats than Shelley. He is a greater artist than a thinker. His philosophy is of the beautiful, as was Keats. And while he lingers by the river's edge to catch the song of the reeds, his gaze is often affixed on the choiring planets. He is nature's most exquisite sounding board, and vibrates to her with intensity, colour and vivacity that have no parallel. Stained with melancholy, his joy is never that of the strong man rejoicing in his muscles. Yet his very tenderness is tonic, and his cry is ever restrained by an attic sense of proportion. Like Alfred de Vigny, he dwelt in a tour d'ivoire that faced the west, and for him the sunrise was not. But, oh, the miraculous moons he discovered, the sunsets and cloud-shine! His notes cast great rich shadows. These chains of blown roses drenched him the dew of beauty. Pompeian colours are too restricted and flat. 
he divulges a world of half-tones, some enfolding sunny spots of greenery, or singing in silvery shade the song of chromatic ecstasy, others huge fragments vaulted like rebounding hail, and black upon black. Chopin is a color genius of the piano. His eye was attuned to hues the most fragile and attenuated. He can weave harmonies that are as ghostly as a lunar rainbow, and lunar-like in their vibration are some of his melodies, glimpses, mysterious and vast, as of a strange world. His utterances are always dynamic, and he emerges betimes as if from Goya's tomb, and etches with sardonic finger nadir and dust. But this spirit of denial is not an abiding mood. Chopin throws a net of tone over souls wearied with rancours and revolts, bridges salty strange seas of misery, and presently we are viewing a mirrored, a fabulous universe wherein death is dead, and love reigns lord of all. Part two. N. said that every epoch is a sphinx which plunges into the abyss as soon as its problem is solved. Born in the very upheaval of the romantic revolution, a revolution evoked by the intensity of its emotion, rather than by the power of its ideas, Chopin was not altogether one of the insurgents of art. Just when his individual soul germinated, who may tell? In his early music are discovered the roots and fibres of Hummel and Field. His growth, involuntary, inevitable, put forth strange sprouts, and he saw in the piano an instrument of two dimensions, a third, and so his music deepened and took on stranger colours. The keyboard had never sung so before. He forged his formula. A new apocalyptic seal of melody and harmony was let fall upon it. Sounding scrolls, delicious arabesques, gorgeous in tint, martial, lyric, a resonance of emerald, a sobbing of fountains, as that Chopin of the gutter, Paul Verlaine has it, the tear crystallized midway, an arrested pearl where overheard in his music, and Europe felt a new shudder of sheer delight. The literary quality is absent, and so is the ethical. Chopin made prophecy, but he never flames into the diverse tongues of the upper heaven. Compared with his passionate abandonment to the dance, Brahms is a loud sea of music, the great infant born with grey hair and with a slow smile of childhood. Chopin seldom smiles, and while some of his music is young, he does not raise in the mind pictures of the fatuous romance of youth. His passion is mature, self-sustained, and never at a loss for the mot propre. And with what marvellous vibration he gamets the passions, festooning them with carnations and great white tube-roses, but the dark dramatic motive is never lost in the decorative wiles of this magician. As the man grew, he laid aside his pretty garlands, and his line became sterner its traceries more gothic. He made Bach his chief god, and within the woven walls of his strange harmonies he sings the history of a soul, a soul convulsed by antique madness, 
by the memory of awful things, a soul lured by beauty to secret glades wherein sacrifice and rites are performed to the solemn sound of unearthly music. Like Maurice de Guérin, Chopin perpetually strove to decipher beauty's enigma, and passionately demanded of the sphinx that defies. Upon the shores of what oceans have they rolled the stones that hides them, O Macaraves? His name was as a stroke of a bell to the romancists. He remained aloof from them, though in a sympathetic attitude. The classic is but a romantic dead, said an acute critic. Chopin was a classic without knowing it. He compassed for the dancers of his land what Bach did for the older forms. With N he led the spirit of revolt, that enclosed his note of agitation in a frame beautiful. The colour, the lies perpetual escape from the formal, deceived his critics, Schumann among the rest. Chopin, like Flaubert, was the last of the idealists, the first of the realists. The newness of his form, his linear counterpoint, misled the critics, who accused him of the lack of it. Schumann's formal deficiency detracts from much of his music, and because of their formal genius, Wagner and Chopin will live. To Chopin might be addressed some Medodak Beladan's words. When your hand writes a perfect line, the cherubim descend to find pleasure therein as in a mirror. Chopin wrote many perfect lines. He is, above all, the faultless lyrist, the Swinburne, the master of fiery, many rhythms, the chanter of songs before sunrise, of the burden of the flesh, the sting of desire and large moulded lace of passionate freedom. His music is, to quote Thoreau, a proud sweet satire on the meanness of our life. He had no feeling for the epic. His genius was too concentrated, and though he could be furiously dramatic, the sustained majesty of blank verse was denied him. With musical ideas he was ever gravid, with their intensity as parent to their brevity, and it must not be forgotten that with Chopin the form was conditioned by the idea. He took up the dancing patterns of Poland, because they suited his vivid inner life. He transformed them, idealized them, attaining to more prolonged phraseology and denser architecture in his ballads and scherzi. But these periods are passionate, never philosophical. All artists are androgynous. In Chopin the feminine often prevails, but it must be noted that this quality is a distinguishing sign of masculine lyric genius, for when he unbends, coquettes and make graceful confessions, or whip his lyric loveliness at fate, then his mother's sex peeps out, a picture of the capricious, beautiful, tyrannical Polish woman. When he stiffens his soul, when Russia gets into his nostrils, from the smoke and flame of his polonaise, the tantalizing despair of his mazurkas are testimony to the strong man-soul in rebellion. But it is often a physical masquerade. The sag of melancholy is soon felt, and the old Chopin, the subjective Chopin, wails afresh in melodic moodiness. That he could attempt far flights, one may see in his B-flat minor sonata, 
in a scherzi, in several of the ballades, above all in the F minor fantasie. In this great work, the technical invention keeps pace with the inspiration. It coheres. There is not a flaw in the reverberating marble, not a rift in the idea. If Chopin, diseased to death's door, could erect such a palace of dreams, what might not he have dared had he been healthy? But forth from his misery came sweetness and strength, like honey from the lion. He grew amazingly the last ten years of his existence, grew with a promise that recalls Keats, Shelley, Mozart, Schubert, and the rest of the early slaughtered angelic crew. His flame-like spirit waxed and waned in the gusty surprises of a disappointed life. To the earth for consolation he bent his ear, and caught the echoes of the cosmic comedy, the far-off laughter of the hills, the lament of the sea, and the muttering of its depths. These things, with the tales of sombre cloud and shining skies, and whisperings of strange creatures dancing timidly in pavonine twilights, he traced upon the ivory keys of his instrument, and the world was richer for a poet. Chopin is not only the poet of the piano, he is also the poet of music, the most poetic of composers. Compared with him, Bach seems to make of solid polyphonic prose, Beethoven a scooper of stars, a master of growling storms, Mozart a weaver of gay tapestries, Schumann, a divine stammerer. Schubert alone of all the composers resembles him in his lyric prodigality. Both were masters of melody, but Chopin was a master workman of the two, and polished, after bending and beating, his theme fresh from the fire of his forge. He knew that to complete his wailing Iliads, the strong hand of the reviser was necessary, and he also realized that nothing is more difficult for the genius than to retain his gift. Of all natures, the most prone to pessimism, procrastination, and vanity, the artist is most apt to become ennued. It is not easy to flame always at the focus, to burn fiercely with the central fire. Chopin knew this, and cultivated his ego. He saw, too, that the love of beauty, for beauty's sake, was fascinating, but led to the way called madness. So he rooted his art, gave it the earth of Poland, and its deliquescence is put off to the day when a new system of musical aestheticism will have rooted the old, when the ugly shall be king, and melody the handmaiden of science. But until that most grievous and undesired time, he will catch the music of our souls, and give it cry and flesh. Part three. Chopin is the open door in music. Besides having been a poet, and giving vibratory expression to the concrete, he was something else. He was a pioneer. Pioneer, because in youth he had bowed to the tyranny of the diatonic scale, and savoured the illicit joys of the chromatic. It is briefly curious that Chopin is regarded purely as a poet among musicians, and not as a practical musician. 
They will swear him a phenomenal virtuoso, but your musician, orchestral, and theoretical, raises the eyebrow of the supercilious if Chopin is called creative. A cunning fingersmith, a moulder of decorative patterns, a master at making new figures, all this is granted. But speak of Chopin as path-breaker in the harmonic forest, that true forest of numbers, as the forger of melodic metal, the sweetest, purest in temper, and, lo, you are regarded as one mentally askew. Chopin invented many new harmonic devices. He untied the cord that was restrained within the octave, leading it into the dangerous but delectable land of extended harmonies, and how he chromatized the prudish, rigid garden of German harmony, how he moistened it with the flashing, changeful waters until it grew bold and brilliant with promise. A French theorist, Albert Lavignac, called Chopin a product of the German Romantic school. This is hitching the star to the wagon. Chopin influenced Schumann. It can be proven a hundred times, and Schumann understood Chopin, else he could not have written the Chopin of the Carnaval, which quite out Chopin's Chopin. Chopin is a musical soul of Poland. He incarnates its political passion. First a Slav, by adopting a Parisian, he is open door, because he admitted into the West Eastern musical ideas, Eastern tonalities, rhythms, in fine, the Slavic, all that is objectionable, decadent, and dangerous. He inducted Europe into the mysteries and seductions of the Orient. His music lies wavering between the East and the West. A neurotic man, his tissues trembling, his sensibilities aflame, the offspring of a nation doomed to pain and partition. It was quite natural for him to go to France. Poland had ever been her historical client, the France that overheated all Europe. Chopin, born after two revolutions, the true child of insurrection, chose Paris for his second home. Revolt sat easily upon his inherited aristocratic instincts. No proletarian is quite so thorough a revolutionist as a born aristocrat, witness Nietzsche, and Chopin, in the bloodless battle of the Romantics, in the silent warring of Slav against Teuton, Gaul and Anglo-Saxon, will ever stand as protagonist of the artistic drama. All that followed, the breaking up of the old hard and fast boundaries on the musical map, is due to Chopin. A pioneer, he has been rewarded as such by a polite ignorement or bland condescension. He smashed the portals of the convention that forbade a man bearing his sword to the multitude. The psychology of music is the gainer thereby. Chopin, like Velasquez, could paint single figures perfectly, but to great massed effects he was a stranger. Wagner did not fail to profit by his marvellously drawn soul portraits. Chopin taught his century the pages of patriotism, and showed Grieg the value of a national awe. He practically recreated the harmonic charts. He gave voice to the individual, himself a product of a nation dissolved by overwrought individualism. As Schumann assures us, 
His is the proudest and most poetic spirit of his time. Chopin, subdued by his familiar demon, was a true specimen of Nietzsche's Übermensch, which is but Emerson's oversaw shorn of her wings. Chopin's transcendental scheme of techniques is the image of a supernormal lift in composition. He sometimes robs music of its corporeal vesture, and his transcendentalism lies not alone in his striving after strange tonalities and rhythms, but in seeking the emotionally recondite. Self-tormented, ever a dweller on the threshold, he saw visions that outshone the glories of hashish, and his nerve-swept soul ground in its mills exceeding fine music. His vision is of beauty. He persistently groped at the hem of her robe, but never sought to transpose or to tone the commonplace of life. For this he reproved Schubert. Such intensity cannot be purchased, but at the cost of breath, of sanity. And his picture of life is not so high, wide, sublime, or awful as Beethoven's. Yet it is just as inevitable, sincere, and as tragically poignant. Stanislav Przybyszewski, in his Tour Psychologie des Individuums, approaches the morbid Chopin, the Chopin who threw open to the world the East, who waved his chromatic wand to Liszt, Tchaikovsky, Saint-Saëns, Goldmark, Rubinstein, Richard Strauss, Dvorak, and all Russia with his continental composers. This Polish psychologist, a fulgurant expounder of Nietzsche, finds in Chopin face and mania, the true stigma of the mad individualist, the individual who, in the first instance, is moved but an oxidation apparatus. Nietzsche and Chopin are the most outspoken individualities of the age. He forgets Wagner. Chopin himself the finest flowering of a morbid and rare culture. His music is a series of psychoses. He has the Sehnsucht of a marvellously constituted nature, and the shrill dissonance of his nerves, as seen in the psychological outbursts of the B-minor scherzo, is the acne of a tortured soul. The piece is Chopin's Iliad. In it are the ghosts that lurk near the hidden alleys of the soul, but here come out to leer and exult. Orla, the Orla of Guy de Maupassant, the sinister doppelganger of mankind, which races with him to the goal of eternity, perhaps to outstrip and master him in the next evolutionary cycle, master as does man the brute creation. This Orla, according to Fritz Bichewski, conquered Chopin and became vocal in his music. This Orla has mastered Nietzsche, who, quite mad, gave the world that Bible of the Übermensch, the dancing lake rose poem, also sprach Zarathustra. Nietzsche's discipline is half right. Chopin's moods are often morbid, his music often pathological. Beethoven, too, is morbid, but in his kingdom, so vast, so varied, the mood is lost or lightly felt, while in Chopin's province it looms a maleficent upas tree, with flowers of evil, and its leaves glistering with essentiousness but so keen for symmetry, for all the term formal beauty implies, is Chopin, 
that seldom does his morbidity madden, his voluptuousness poison. His music has its morris, but also its upland, where the gale blows strong and true. Perhaps all art is, as the incorrigible Noldar declares, a slight deviation from the normal, so Ribot scoffs at the existence of any standard of normality. The butcher and the candlestick-maker have their orla, their secret soul convulsions, which they set down to taxation, the vapours, or weather. Chopin has surprised the musical melody of the century. He is its chief spokesman. After the vague, mad, noble dreams of Byron, Shelley, and Napoleon, the awakening found those disillusioned souls, Wagner, Nietzsche, and Chopin. Wagner sought in the epical rehabilitation of a vanished Valhalla a surcease from the world-pain. He consciously selected his anodyne, and in the Meistersinger touched a consoling earth. Chopin and Nietzsche, temperamentally finer and more sensitive than Wagner, the one musical, the other intellectually, sang themselves in music and philosophy, because they were so constituted. Their nerves rode them to their death. Neither found the serenity and repose of Wagner, for neither was as sane, and both suffered mortally from hyperesthesia, the penalty of all sick genius. Chopin's music is the aesthetic symbol of a personality nurtured on patriotism, pride, and love. That it is better expressed by the piano is because of that instrument's idiosyncrasies of evanescent tone, sensitive touch, and wide range in dynamics. It was Chopin's lyre, the orchestra of his heart. From it he exhorted music the most intimate since Sappho. Among lyric moderns, N closely resembles the pole. Both sang because they suffered, sang ineffable and ironic melodies. Both will endure because of their brave sincerity, their surpassing art. The musical, the psychical history of the nineteenth century, would be incomplete without the name of Frédéric François Chopin. Wagner externalized its dramatic soul. In Chopin, the mad lyricism of the time spirit is made eloquent. Into his music modulated the poetry of his age. He is one of its heroes, a hero of whom Swinburne might have sung. O strong-winged soul with prophetic lips hot with the blood-beads of song, with the tremor of heart-strings magnetic, with thoughts asunder in throng, with consonant ardor of chords that pierce men's souls as with swords and hail them hearing along. End of chapter 5